Listener Production. It's Rusty here, all set for part two of our 50th episode of The Garage, and we're fortunate to mark the milestone with Aussie actor Eric Banner. If you haven't already, head back to the library and have a listen to part one, which includes some details on an awesome new movie that he's directing, starring in, and writing the screenplay for on Mike the Bike Halewood, one of the greatest motorcycle racers of all time. We also cover Eric's early days and how he found his pride and joy an XB Falcon Coupe, the beast. Plus his recollections of meeting a young racer by the name of Craig Lowndes. Eric did it, you may recall, in his full mullet-wearing cult character, Puida. Sweet! <laughs> we begin part two by seeing if he sought out mentors or trainers for his racing, a little like actors do when they use a coach to perfect an accent. One of the things I've learned over the years is that learning is a skill in itself. And one of the things I love about my job is is, is in, in a vast majority of cases, when you take on a role, you're about to learn something that you didn't know before. Now, whether that be just on a purely analytical level or whether it be a, a, a specific physical skill set or whatever, um, that is a process that, that, you get, that you get practiced in and get better at. And so... Motor racing to me was no different. It was kind of like, how do I set up my week or my weekend? How do I set up my sessions to improve? Like, so it, it is, there is a process, but at the same time, it was always fun for me. I was, I, I never, I, I never wanted to be professional. I never had aspirations of, you know, I'm going to get to this. I want to do all these events. I want to do all these things. I was really keen always on Bathurst, but besides that, um, it was always fun and I, I had to be really careful that I didn't allow it to tip over into something that um, might have suited other people more than it suited myself. Naturally, when you're learning, you you call on different people. I would imagine there are, um, you know, voice and accent coaches and things like that that you would use in, in a movie sense. What about some of the riders or drivers that have, may have have assisted along the way with, with you know, your racing? Um, not too much. I mean, a really close buddy of mine, Peter Hill, was 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 a great a great sort of mentor in the sense that you know he'd tell me what to sort of bother focusing on and what not to bother focusing on. But at the same time, he he knew that it was all fun for me. So um, I, I never really received a whole lot of you know high end kind of tuition. I did I did a couple of set sessions um, with uh, with a, with a fellow over in the in the UK who who is a who's an absolute legend. Um, but besides that, no, I didn't. I didn't sort of align myself to a pro driver and do what a lot of people do. I, I didn't really interest me that much. I probably should have, but I just really enjoyed it. And um, I, I wasn't a big crasher on on the circuit, to be honest. So it wasn't like you know there was like uh, an area that that really needed to be addressed to make me safer or or, or, or so forth. So um, I just I love the process, and and it's kind of similar. With, with the two wheels, the two wheels is probably a bit more kind of uh, zen-like for me because I most track days I don't even use a stopwatch. Um, I just go by feel. Um, but, um, yeah, there hasn't been a, a kind of major, like you say, mentor sort of figure for me in that area. 
the whole racing aspect, Tim Lay said to me that you were really solid. Just how much did Tim Lay say before this <laughs> You're actually lucky. podcast? I've got to ask you two more things from, from him. <laughs> He's been good. He said you were super... He's getting a phone call from Oh, good, me. good. Um, he says you were solid in your stints, no errors or mistakes at the at the mountain. Tell me what it meant for you, having dreamt of it, to, to drive something like that, to race something like that at the mountain to tick that box whatever it was a decade ago now that's very cool and you finished you finished top 10 eric in the 12 hour it's amazing oh mate it was it was incredible so so i got to do it three times in in total the first time as you mentioned was with timmy lay and and peter hill we did it in a evo 10 um and i think that was uh that was the second last year before it switched over into full gd3 production we turned up with a really underprepared last minute, uh, you know, prepared car that was, you know, so far behind the rest of the Evos, it wasn't funny. It was like a pogo stick to drive around the top of the mountain, honestly. Um, but to me, I don't think I got any seat time until the Saturday. I'd never driven around the track. Um, I'd only, you know, played it on PlayStation or what, whatever it was. And, and, and actually, a friend of Tim's loaned me a sim for a couple of weeks so I could learn the track here at home. And Peter Hill would come over and sort of say, you won't get away with that there. Be careful of this at the grate and so forth. I honestly believe that the only reason I didn't crash was because of the sim time that really? I put in before. I, but yeah, I really okay. I really do. Um, but it was just amazing. I couldn't believe how narrow it was. I, I'd been there before as a spectator, but as a driver, the, I, I loved how the track got wider and wider over the course of the weekend. And um Whilst the car was a bit of a handful, let's be honest, I'm used to driving cars that are a bit <laughs> of a handful. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that first year that the, we, we finished, I think, 10th, the, the car wasn't, wasn't great, but we got to the end. The next year we went back and we were doing even better. I think, in fact, we were running fourth outright when Peter had a big moment up, up the top. I uh, had a a relatively big moment on his own and then got cleaned up by another driver and we were we were done and luckily he was okay because the car was a complete write-off but that second year the car was fantastic it was so much fun to drive mm-hmm. we really had a had a great a great car that was well sorted we were still nowhere near the the heafy packages of of the time but the car was still really good and then the third time was was in the lambo um and i think that year we finished 11th I think or 12th and that was the year that it was about 38 degrees we had no aircon in the car we lost our radio I think halfway through the, the day boy it's a long day when you lose your radio oh man um, I have one memory I got ripped off in a stint I was about 30 minutes into a stint and I came down pit straight and one of our pit crew was was on the wall and I, I was sure that I saw a sign saying come in and what had actually happened was the person standing next to him from another team had the sign up saying, come in. So the next lap, I thought, oh, this is not really fair. I've, I've got pretty good rubber. I'm only 30 minutes into a one-hour stint. I pulled into the garage, and I remember thinking, it's odd that there's no, there's no lollipop man at, at the front of our garage. And I turned my head into the garage, and everyone had their backs turned and were, were watching the TV screens, were watching the race. And I realised they're not ready for me to come in. <laughs> and one of the guys popped the headphones off, you know, turned around and said, what's, what's wrong? I said, well, you guys told me to come in. So anyway, we, we did a driver change and uh, fresh, fresh rubber and off we went. But um, yeah, no, just an amazing, amazing place and to, to get to do it a few times. And it all got a bit crazy after that. 
and and we haven't been back since because that was when the GT3 thing really took off and it just got a lot more professional and and the the the, the costs and the the pressure around the event went to a different level so I, I i can't say i i regret not returning since then but uh yeah absolutely un, an unbelievable experience all three times would it tempt you to go back for maybe a six hour or something if time and work permitted almost oh, definitely the six hour format um production car idea really really appeals to me i i don't enjoy getting in people's way and i i think you know to turn up to a GT3 race at the speeds they're doing now with the number of the, the lack of number of amateur gentlemen drivers in that field would be a would be a real stretch um, so out of, out of respect to the rest of the field I think it would be a stretch to have, have a crack at the, 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 the full 12 hour format now with a lack of track time but yeah the six hour idea that is definitely appealing Tim says this is a great endorsement well, not for Tim you no, no 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 he says um, you know if, if time permitted uh from a work standpoint he says you could make a really good am driver he thinks you're you're rock solid but he did tell me one funny story we'll wrap up on on him now he says he's not a great morning person tim lay we're talking about a car dealer from orange who's a good (laughs) racer he's a funny lad um so you're leaving to leaving to go to the track at whatever it was 4 a.m in the morning 5 30 start for the 12 hour back then and he reckons you're all excited Eric Banner you're all fired up for the day and he launched into impersonations he can't recall but he thinks you might have been impersonating Dave Hughes or something or other on the way to the track does that sound about right oh <laughs> uh, it's it's possible I probably need to burn off a bit of a bit of adrenaline or maybe I was trying to wake him up maybe I was trying to get him to fire up and uh, and and wake up yeah the early starts mate that's um that's a challenge I think we gave Pete the uh the first stint every time to um to, to alleviate that problem. Targa is the, you know, the underpinning aspect of, of Love the Beast. Uh, Grant Denyer, who appears in, in the movie there as well, said to me for the podcast, he said the great thing about it is it's like this week-long series of races and every day, every few hours, you turn up at a, at a brand-new racetrack. Is that what appealed to you when you had your first crack at it many years ago? Yeah, to be honest, it was it was it was the adrenaline level. Comparing it to circuit racing, um, it felt more to me like motorcycling. Okay, that's what I think uh, uh, appealed to me. It, it felt instinctually far more like being a motorcyclist than it did a driver. And I think it was because the level of danger, the likelihood of something going wrong, um, but also you know in our in our situation, you know sharing the car with my mate. Uh, in a car that you prepared yourself. It never really appealed to me to do that event in a modern car. Um, so one of the reasons why I've never been back there, you know, so uh, it is it is a pretty special event. I love the camaraderie that comes from the from the classic category. And, and back in those days, the classic category was so much bigger and there were so many, you know, home-built specials and um, it was just a really, really wonderful place to be. So when you decide to launch in and and do this you for the movie sake you um get the input of the likes of dr phil jeremy clarkson also jay leno what for our listeners sake is the jay leno collection like it looks unbelievably cool it really is insane the the thing i love about it is it's it's so eclectic Mm. and it's also um it's really really how, how i best describe it is it's really jay 
Hmm. And I think there are a lot of car collectors out there who collect what they think they should collect, you know, and Jay's not one of those collectors. He just has the things that he really, really loves and respects and doesn't have those things that he probably should have as a collector in the eyes of other people. I think that's what really, really impressed me about his collection. Mm. But it is astonishing and it just goes on and on. You know, you walk out of one building and you think you're done. It's like, yeah, just come over here. You know, we go over here and there's another another door and yeah, look at this. (laughs) What do you think of the mirror? And I'm like... There's another building, and then you go through that building, and then there was another one, and it just um, and he's got this great, great group of guys who you know in his workshop, and he's just so knowledgeable. That's the thing I love about Jay is he's again, you know, he's he's not a collector. He's he's one of the most knowledgeable car people I think we've got, you know, on the on this planet, and and his passion and knowledge is just amazing. How long did the XB sit after the target crash before you launched into the rebuild? Mate, it sat for a long time. It, it really did. I was I was done. But not willing to part with it still, though? Not willing to part with it. I, I, I was kind of torn about what to do next. That's most definitely the case. And I had no energy for it. I, I, I had absolutely zero energy to, to deal with it. So I, I Tony, my, my mate, was gave me a great bit of advice, which he said, you know, mate, you don't have to do anything. Like, don't feel compelled to do anything at all. Like, just relax. It was a really good bit of advice. It just sort of gave me the license to go, yeah, it's annoying that every single person I run into says, you fixed your car yet? (laughs) (laughs) Those people aren't the ones responsible for sourcing parts for an XB coupe, you know. Um, So it took, I I just let it sit for a long time and then I decided to, to, to fix it and then I just spent forever getting the parts together, which is just a whole other mountain that I'll never want to climb again. What are we talk? We're talking. We're talking eBay, every car clubs, all sorts, are we? Yeah, we're talking all all kind of sources, all kind of sources. <laughs> um, and you know, some of these characters, you know, are easier to deal with than others. Um, but uh, then I then I finally uh, I ran into Dick. I think it was at Sandown, and he asked me what was going on. I said, "Oh, you know, it's I haven't started repairing it." He said, "Look, look, mate." He says. Just send it to Robbo. Stop <laughs> mucking around and just put it on a carrier and send it to... And it's actually what I really needed because what I needed, I actually didn't want to get it repaired um, in Melbourne because I, I, I just knew it was going to turn into a massive headache. And I needed someone who was just a car, a, a, a race car person because I, I knew that with a full cage and the, the structural damage, it just needed someone who wasn't intimidated by that. It wasn't a regular smash repair. So that's what I did, mate. I sent it up to, to Robbo at Logan, Logan Village, who at the time was doing you know a, a lot of V8 work, and he just got into it. And it was just not a massive deal for him, and he did an absolutely fantastic job and you know kept me informed, constant progress along the way. Didn't take forever to do either. And then, mate, what I did was I, I got the sort of rolling shell back to a workshop in Melbourne and I let it sit until I had time to work with a mate of mine putting it all back together and uh, I was having a fresh engine built for it and I had a really quiet year that year work-wise and I think I spent about eight months, you know, literally going to workshop every day, you know, getting it resorted and re-engineered and, and finished to, to how it is today because I don't like not being involved and I'm not a smash repair person so there was nothing I could do on that front but once we got the car you know as a rolling shell back and we sort of pulled it apart and started all over again so um, 
just, yeah, being involved myself was really important. And I, I literally, I know every square centimetre of that, that car, you know, so it's, and, and again, like we were talking about before, it coming full circle, um, you know, that was a year when, you know, it was a bit quiet on the work front and it just gave me something to do and gave me a, you know, a sense of purpose and, and um, yeah. One of the key things I'm told, I think it was a Unique Cars article that I, I read, you were absolutely determined that this would not come at the expense of another XB coming off the road. Is that right? You wanted to find the parts and, you know, without sort of, of you know, acquiring another one to be the, the, the bits you needed for yours. A- absolutely. I know this might sound weird because I do love my coupes. I have absolutely zero interest in anyone else's coupe. Okay. Like if, if, if something happened to my coupe tomorrow, there would not be another coupe. I, I have zero interest in any other coupe than, than, than my own and nev- never have been interested in any other coupe than my own. So um, that, that was the case, most definitely. And, and at the time, it wouldn't have been an easy thing to find a kind of uh, donor car anyway, because by then they were already a little bit out of control mm. price-wise, nothing like they are today. But um, yeah, and also that didn't feel right to me as you know someone in the classic car community. I, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to pull a, you know, a, a, a going concern off the road just so I could, you know, have... I, if that was the case, I wouldn't have rebuilt the car. But it, it, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. So it was repairable. And, and like I say, Robbo up at Logan Village Smash Repairs just, just absolutely brained it. Targa Tasmania takes its name from the Targa Florio, a former motoring event held on the island of Sicily. I wonder if we should also rename Tassie to Little Sicily? You said before about Dick Johnson Racing and the advice that he um, that he gave you to, to kickstart the process and get it going. Supercast fans will have, you know, their ears will have pricked up with that because I think also too, was there a bit of involvement from the engine side with Ford Performance Racing and maybe Stone Brothers from a suspension side? Is that correct, some of that stuff? Uh, no, so so on the engine side, um, that was done by the Nancurvises oh, here in Victoria. Yeah, Brad Nancurvis, who I think used to work at FPR mm-hmm. years ago. But yeah, the Nancurvis family out, out near Bendigo. Awesome. Incredible engine builders. Yeah, so Brad built the engine for the car. Um, and then whilst it was up at Robbo's, he really talked me into upgrading the suspension into something pretty special, which I'm... I'm more indebted to Robbo for that than the repair, I've got to say, because it absolutely, he said to me, he says, when this thing's back on the road, he says, you can have a completely different car to the one you had if you do the suspension properly. It will drive like you you just will never believe. And he's right. That thing is insane to drive now. It It has zero XB underpinnings in terms of the geometry and so forth. And that wasn't, that wasn't a painful exercise. We just, we just contacted one of the guys up in Queensland who was doing a lot of work for for the, one of the V8 teams, they you know CAD drew up uh, uh, you know some arms and some pieces and we had them made up and they did an amazing job and and the car now drives you know incredibly well like incredibly well that was one of the the really one of the upsides to a to a pretty shitty experience was <laughs> the fact that I now have a car that drives you know ten times better than it did before. What kind of horsepower are we talking? And you mentioned before about that quieter period of work and how you're able to be hands on. It it has got some signature 
banner and and banner mates loving it. You you guys, I think, might have built the gearbox cross member or something. What have what have you done for the? Oh, yeah, the there's a lot of fabrication work mm. over the years, and um, yeah, so it's now it's running. Um, uh, I can tell you exactly. Actually, it makes three around three hundred and ten kilowatts at the wheels. So it's probably around that sort of six, just a little bit over six hundred horsepower. Beautiful, um, but very drivable. I mean, there's there's a lot more horses there if you were to go a bit crazy with a cam and a spacer okay. uh, on the car. But um, in its current trim, yeah, it, it's it's running um, around three hundred five, three ten kilowatts at the wheels. In uh, the research for this, you spoke to um, one particular website about about a top five cars that you might like to have in the garage clearly this is one you won't part with what are the other the other four that you would you know perhaps love to have in the garage one day oh that's a tough one i'm 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 not a collector at all so i I fall into the category of um if i'm not using and abusing it i've just got no interest in it so um i I could never envisage having a like a collection per se Uh there are a few cars that i that i love from a design point of view um i think the ferrari daytona is a is a is a beautiful car and i think the 300 uh sl not not only as a as a gullwing actually i think the roadster is you know an absolutely stunning stunning car you know a beautiful beautiful car um i love a split window vet i think they're a pretty pretty special looking thing um, none of these cars necessarily would I would I try and own, but they're just you know cars that I really really yep. appreciate. I love my truck, mate. I've got a '54 F100, which I think is one of the most beautiful looking things ever made. <laughs> you know, for a work truck, yeah, they are just absolute. I just I can't stop staring at that thing. Um, and my other favourite, which I'm lucky enough to own and have owned for 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 over. Uh, oh god nearly 20 years now i've got an old speedster beautiful uh, 356 yeah yeah which i was very lucky enough to pick up at the right time before things went went mad but um to this day that car is is just is just ridiculously stunning um so my my taste is quite all over the place i love looking at my pickup truck as much as i love looking at the speedster to be honest yeah Tell us a little bit more about the pickup truck. Mm. Are we talking left-hand drive? Is it uh, what what sort of state of repair is it in, and things like that? So it's the exact opposite of most of the ones that you see, which which have had conversions and you know got late model running gear and front ends. This is bone stock. It's a Memphis truck, 1954. Still runs a 272 Y block engine, three on the tree, column shift, bench seat, uh, original height suspension, skinny tires. It's a it's a um, it's a light sort of powder blue color, Brilliant. and it is just it is stunning. I bought it as a as a unfinished project out of the states, and and um, just been fettling away the last sort of few years on that. It's running really nice now, but it's a stunning stunning piece of work. You brought up three five six Speedster. There is a bit of a flair, a bit of a, a love for Porsche, which has has existed along the way in this great journey of yours with with cars. Firstly. Um, am I right in saying there's been uh, some stuff in your career involving 944s, correct? Yeah, so my first circuit car was a 944. I raced in the Victorian 944 series for a few years, and that was my sort of entree. And a great car, a, an absolute ripping race car. Not a lot of horsepower, but t- to this day, that series is you know absolutely fantastic. Anyone who wants to get started in motorsport, 
I couldn't recommend a better car or category. That is just a really, really great car to drive. Um, I went from that, then I bought a, 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 then I competed in the sports series down here, Victorian sports uh, category in a bit of a Bitsa car, which was a a 3.3 litre turbo GT2 replica style and it, and Alex Davison took it for a couple laps around Phillip Island one day came back and said you are mad that thing is ridiculous so um so I had that for a few years um and that's a yellow car that you see at the beginning of of Love the Beast and that was an absolute weapon um and then I went into a 996 cup car beautiful and did a bit of GT3 cup challenge here in Victoria and then uh, even entered that into a few national uh, GT3 races and was lucky enough to race up at um, up at Homebush and here at Grand Prix in Adelaide and had that car for many years and sold it a couple of years ago. So yeah, I do I do really love my Porsches and that 996 Cup car was pretty special. It was the last of the H pattern GT3 cars before they they went to the sequential shift with the 997 uh, and it was in perfect condition. With Mark, we're able to also sample a very special Porsche when it came down under at the Grand Prix one year, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. He, he took me for, for a lap in a 918 around, um, around Albert Park. And I don't know if, if you've spoken to him before this podcast, but I don't know if he admitted that he, he ran a bit long. Oh, did he? And we uh, did took, he? took a trip onto the grass. <laughs> That'll get back. Uh, <laughs> It was uh, the back end of the back straight. Wow! Uh, the the, le- the left hander, that little that little kink, that little sort of chicane there off at the back of the golf course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he, he uh, had the uh, the F one car brake markers in his head. <laughs> and we, we we arrived a little late on the scene and uh, went straight ahead onto the onto the grass and back on. And then we we finished the lap and he pulled up and said, "Your turn," which hadn't been organised, um, and he pre-approved it with Porsche that I could that I could take it for a spin and so but he surprised you with it absolute surprise so before I knew it I was doing a lap of Albert Park with Mark Weber in the passenger seat and I was driving a 918 and um whilst you know I, I was being a little bit careful you know I also it wasn't a parade lap Rusty let's put it that way it was fun got that one opportunity you got to go with it yeah hey let's let's um get back to kind of current projects if we can to conclude here we began our discussion with Mike the Bike on on Mike Halewood. Um, what can you tell us? Obviously, there's, you know, the COVID period has probably impacted things, but have you got a, a sort of timeline and, and what you're hoping in as far as production is concerned? No, we don't have a timeline as yet. So I'll just be making the most of this kind of, you know, productive, unproductive time, just, just working on the working on the script. But until the world sort of, you know, and unfortunately because of the, the, the kind of project it is, it's not it's not like a, a narrative feature that we can kind of reconfigure to shoot here in Victoria. So it's one of those projects that we kind of need the world to be to be back to normal. Right. You know, before we can put put start putting things together. So it's a, it is a real bummer. We, you know, in a perfect world would love to have to 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 looked at 2021 to 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 be attempting to to make it obviously that's completely mm-hmm. impossible so I, yeah I couldn't I couldn't put a time frame on it now it it's it's obviously been a, a massive setback but it doesn't change a lot of things it doesn't change the desire it doesn't change the kind of film that I want to make it doesn't change the the the, the pitch that I gave to the Halewood family all those things remain intact 
the script won't change as a result of what's happening. Um, so we'll just do everything we can to, to turn it into into an actual movie rather than a than a um, you know just a a chance. So a lot of these things are about timing, um, putting movies together and putting movie financing together in particular is really about momentum and timing. And right now that doesn't really exist in the in the film space. So we'll um, we'll you know pick up the pieces and do everything we possibly can when this is all over. It's a big undertaking from you, Eric, because it's not just the acting. You've talked about the screenplay aspect, but but your involvement as a director as well. When you, you know, so... I mean, supercars drivers talk about now that it's nigh on impossible to be a team boss and to be a driver. But, you know, you're doing uh, all of those things. Immersing yourself in it, I think, is is um, probably, probably helps. But what's that like when it's all encompassing like that? Yeah, it is intimidating. I have a really special friend work colleague that I'm that I'm working on this project with in Rob Connolly who is you know just one of the great producers directors here in this country and we share an office and we're very close friends and really kind of lean on each other and 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 we're working together on this and and Rob was with me when I sat down with Pauline at the Indian restaurant in in the UK years ago and we, we, we do a lot of this stuff together so we 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 it's it's a wonderful partnership, and I couldn't contemplate doing it all by myself. I have I have Rob as as my partner, and to bounce ideas off, and um, you know we we'd like to direct the film together. So um, that that's that that's really important and of immense help, especially at the moment where you know where you really you know all of us are having to lean on each other. You know we're all having to you know check in on our mates and you know on a professional sense and on a personal sense so it's really it's really great to have that that professional hand so true mate you do have a new movie that's due for release um i think in the new year the dry based on the best-selling novel by by jane harper shot in victoria tell us a bit more about that yeah incredible so if anyone who's read the book will will know this was you know one of the biggest selling books in australia the last sort of two or three years jane harper Wrote this book called *The Dry*, which is essentially a thriller set in a tiny country town, which 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 we based out out near Warwicknabeel in um, cent- you know Western Victoria, out in the Mallee Wimmera, Wimmera region, um, and that was really really special to be able to shoot out there. And we had a great crew out on location for for a couple of months, and we all just hunkered down and got that job done. The film is stunning, and it was directed by my friend and partner Robert Connolly. Who I mentioned before, who's just who's just done the most unbelievable job. The film's sitting there, you know, it's 100% finished. Uh, we were originally would have released in August of this year, so we would have would have come out this 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 month um, in a normal environment. But obviously, like everyone else, we're now pushed into next year. So, but the film is absolutely stunning, and I'm really really proud of it, and can't wait to share it with the rest of Australia. Um, it's it's pretty special. Can I finish with, I don't like uh, with these podcasts as a rule talking about people's private lives. That's not something I, I generally venture into. But in Love the Beast, you use some voicemail messages in the storytelling, which I thought was terrific. The kids were worried about the crash that you'd had at the time and was dad okay and so on. Words to the effect that, you know, I really wanted to go for a ride with you in the car on a racetrack one day. Have you done that? Oh, yeah. So that was that was the voicemail that, that my son left at the time. Um he has not been on a racetrack. 
No, that is not that has not happened. We, that that opportunity hasn't presented itself. So I would like to do that someday. I don't know if it'll be in the beast, um, but it'll uh, it'll be in something. He's he's now all grown up and and um, twenty one and. Uh, you know, well, I listen to that voicemail now. I have to remind him that it's actually, it's actually him. Um, both of my kids luckily have zero interest in cars. Is that hard, mate? Because it's been a generational thing for you with your dad and so on. Um, yes and no. It, it, it means that you know the fleet really is my responsibility, right? <laughs> so I don't get a whole lot of, I don't get much of a hand with that. But um, at the same time, I'm thrilled for their pockets Yes, <laughs> that they're not mad keen because, you know, that generation, I just don't know where they'd even park a vehicle, right? So I'm quite relieved in some ways. Um, having said that, they do love the old stuff and they do love design and, and, and things like that. So they do really appreciate the, old, the older cars, um, but they're not, they're not car people at all, which is, which is you know, some, somewhat a bit of a relief. Mate, it's been super to talk to you. We've uh, chewed up a lot of your time here, but I, I really appreciate it. Congratulations on everything that you've done so far and the ability that you know has very fortunately come with that to indulge your passion along the way, and we wish you continued success. Rusty, thank you so much, mate. It's been a uh, real pleasure chatting to you, and I love, love the show. And uh, this has been a massive highlight for me, just having a good chat and all the best, mate, and we'll, I'll keep listening to all of them and uh, to everyone out there, you know, stay well and, you know, look after your cars. Absolutely. Catch up soon. Thank you. Cheers, mate. All the best. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.